Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. Have we really done 10 of these since we were banished to our homes? Yes, we have, but we are pretty much undeterred. Thea Lenarducci, are you undeterred? I, I am undeterred. I mean, I'm here. Yeah. I'm here, aren't I? <laughs> it's got slightly... I remember the first one we did. The technology didn't feel like our friend, did it? No, it didn't. I remember being so kind of worried about it that I couldn't think straight. <laughs> That's my defence anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, but since then, it's, it's, it's got better and better. Um, now, listen, before we get into the podcast, it's time to do some listeners' comments. And please keep them coming in. It's a joy to make these connections uh, during lockdown, especially. You can tweet us at the TLS, at Stigable, at Thea underscore Lenarducci, or email me stig.able at the-tls.co.uk. All the emails I get are magnificent, I've got to be honest with you. So let's start with literary pets. It's taking a predictably odd turn, Thea. Are you ready? I'm ready. Rollo Rollo Armstrong offers this. I have two pets, actually, full disclosure, two teenage boys named Dalloway, age 16, and Larkin, age 14. They are at an age where they can and do complain about pretty much anything, but thus far have not complained about their names. Admittedly, these are usually shortened to Dally and Larks, but every now and again, generally in times of trouble, their full names are used. Dalloway and Larkin. That's good, isn't it? Where where are we based here? Are we in America? Are we? In... I don't know where we're. I I don't know, but they are very. And I think we if if we if we've started literary pets, I feel we have to start a new section there, literary children. Yeah, I mean, although I I mean, I think we could quite happily blur the lines between pets and children, as as indeed Rollo does. Indeed, I, I don't think we should stop literary pets, but I feel the new category is literary children. As well, I was trying to think whether my kids have literary names. And Penelope, who's my eldest, Nelly. Penelope, Penelope has a, you know, the Odyssey and all that. That's almost a literary name, I think. Is that where you got and it from? Did you choose it with that in mind, I mean? We, when I was younger, this is an embarrassing fact, I had an imaginary friend called Auntie Nelly. Really? <laughs> yeah, I did. Did she live in the, east, in the imaginary east end of London? She lived at the imaginary end of my garden. But anyway, I always liked the name Nelly. And then I like Penelope as well, uh, possibly because of the Odyssey. So it's kind of half literary, I think. Um, so there we go. Literary names, literary pets. We have some more traditional pets, though. This is a really, this is so literary. It's almost too literary, but it's not too literary. John Cleary writes to disclose that in his younger, more pretentious days, as he puts it, he had a cat called Agnostinelli, named after Proust's chauffeur and secretary who was ultimately a would-be aviator. The cat lived up to his name in inspiring devotion and in showing a reckless disregard for his personal safety. But John then changed his name to Goss. And he didn't then behave like his literary namesake, the writer Edmund Goss, except perhaps in exhibiting what Henry James calls Goss's genius for inaccuracy, launching himself at moving targets and missing them. I'd like to know know why, what this poor cat, did to deserve a name change 
he wanted to shorten Agnostinelli. To oh, Nelly. to just Goss. Oh, oh I see. Uh, I, 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 and then they thought she didn't like Nelly. John didn't like Nelly, so they came up with fair enough, to, as you were. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but anyway, apparently, according to John, like Agnostinelli and Albertine, one day he went out and never came back. So R.I.P. Agnostinelli and Goss. Oh. That's, that's like a novel. I mean, that's what I'm saying. These are all magnificent. Uh, Kent Rawlinson used to have a ginger cat called Dante after both the hellfire of the poet and the redheads of the artist Gabriel, Dante Gabriel Rosotti. Rosetti. <laughs> Risotto. <laughs> Risotto, yeah. <laughs> you, know why, you, know, you know why the family name is Rosetti though, right? No. Well, it was, cho- it was chosen. So like several generations before Dante Gabriel Rosetti, like before him, I think maybe it was his father or the generation before, at some point anyway, the family changed its name. It was um, De La, uh, La Gerardesca, I think, and they changed it to Rossetti because, or Rossetti because um, a family trait was this, like, violent red hair. Oh, so a ginger cat is well-named. Oh, there we go. Well, anyway, D- Dante's dead now, but his successor is a chatty kitten called Brabble which Kent tells us is an obsolete 16th century word, meaning to chatter inconsequentially. I don't know if that's a, a secret knock at us. <laughs> Actually, I, I did know that because in Twelfth Night, Antonio is apprehended in the midst of a private brabble. Brabble. Brabble the cat. Brabble is a great name. Uh, actually, by this time next week, Theo, by the time we speak again, we will have our cat Boudica in the house. I don't think you've given... What, is she, what, what does she look like? She's ginger. She's a small little uh, little ginger cat. I don't really know what more to say. I've only seen videos of her. I think that's all you can I'll, I'll, say at this point. Yeah, I'll try and create a pen por- portrait for next week. Uh, and just what, one more email. David Camera emailed from New York, who said he's, he's listening to us because all the libraries are shut, uh, which is a sad point. And, and I often that I think about libraries because my daughter's favourite thing was going to the library. We don't go to it at all uh, anymore. Uh, but yes, yeah, so the libraries are shut, so he sort of turns to us. Uh, but he also wants to talk about baseball. He's a Mets fan. And I mentioned that I uh, listen to baseball at night and he wants to know what I listen to. So, David, I'll tell you what I do. I listen to all of last year's playoff games. Uh, and I've got, I have an app which plays them and I just listen to it. And I start following the game and I fall asleep in 10 minutes normally. And do those, do those work because you know the outcome so you're not sort of on the edge of your seat? I don't care about that. Yeah, I don't care about the outcome. And what I love about baseball, it's a bit like cricket. Uh, I just like the rhythm of it. You know, there's a sort of the, the knock and the, the, the movement of it. It's very leisurely. It takes three hours. It's summery. It's a different, you know, I think we're always looking to escape, aren't we, a bit? And it just sort of takes you away, it takes you away from it. So I... Yeah, uh, I totally, um, I totally get that. I mean, I, I, um, I, I'm not one for organised sport, um, <laughs> but I do, I grew up in a really football-y household. Um, and I still find the noise of football in the background, sort of low-level... TV football really yeah. relaxing just for exactly yeah. what you mentioned it's kind of lulling and the kind of the rise and fall of the crowd and all of that sort of stuff as long as, as, long as, as, long as they're not as they're not ch- chanting obscenities of course, <laughs> which they so <laughs> often yeah. are yeah I'd love it Theo if you, if you went to sleep to, to, to just recorded obscenities <laughs> that'd be fantastic uh, anyway we don't mind people falling asleep listening to us provided like David you also subscribe to the TLS uh, so use this special offer code if you're not the dash tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer it's the best price anywhere on the internet six issues for five pounds or five dollars enough brabble for now coming up this week we've got a special in the paper on children's literature sam leith the intrepid man of letters has been rereading the work of willard price which involves animals children and colonialism can tell us how well that's aged. Generally speaking, 20th century children's books at least try to be exciting. That was not always the case. Molly Guinness has been prowling the archives of old fiction for kids, and our lead piece is a lovely meditation on loneliness following two recent books on the subject. It's an essentially a modern phenomenon made worse by recent events. The novelist Adam Folds will keep us company for a bit to tell us more. time, the difference between solitude and loneliness might have been breezily explained as a matter of choice. You choose solitude, you are lonely, against your will, a casualty of circumstance. Stock images come easily to mind. In the first instance, one thinks perhaps of someone curved over a page, writing or reading. In the second, of someone elderly and housebound, gazing out of the window or watching TV for company. 
But the coronavirus and the lockdown it provoked has reminded us that such neatness never does stand up in reality. Solitude can be involuntary, enforced by others, and can easily mutate into loneliness. Indeed, things might go the other way too, solitude representing something like mastery of the art of loneliness. Solitude might once have been considered selfish, virtue lies in sociability. Now, staying at home alone is one of the most altruistic things one can do. And of course, one can be locked in a house full of other people, even people you love and who in many ways do sustain you, and still feel desperately lonely. Indeed, it's difficult to imagine a better time to be thinking and writing about solitude and loneliness, as the novelist and poet Adam Fold has done in this week's TLS. He's written a beautiful review essay taking in two recent works, David Vincent's History of Solitude and a biography of loneliness by Faye Bound Alberti. Adam Folds joins us on the line now to tell us what he has found by exploring aloneness, past and present. Hello, Adam. Hello. Um, let's begin how you begin with Philip Larkin, um, who would you say have made a great case study for both of the books you review? He had, in his younger years at least, quite a simple understanding of solitude, didn't he? That's right, yes. In his uh, poem of the early 50s, I think, Best Society, uh, he talks about how he used to think uh, solitude was a simple, uh, readily accessible resource, like nakedness, I think uh, he says, uh, something that's always sort of near at hand and available, and later finds that society interferes with this um, and that access to an experience of solitude becomes more complicated. And solitude is a, is, is a theme that really runs through um, Larkin's work, in some ways, he's, he's writing in a, a kind of late romantic um, tradition. He likes solitude in, in nature. He, uh, he believes in the solitary artist in states of transcendence, albeit this is hedged around with rather kind of prickly ironies and banalities. Um, but that's always there. The desire for solitude runs through his work. Uh, an uncomfortableness with society runs through his work, but also a very a kind of acute and pain sense of uh, solitude in society, the solitude that we see in, in the poem Ambulances, for example, where someone is kind of vacuumed out of society towards their mortality. Um, and, and solitude and mortality kind of converge in Larkin's work, um, as you see in, in, in his late great poem, or Bard, where he talks about um, death as a kind of final and interminable uh, state of solitude. Uh, and indeed, I mean, one of, one of the things that his case makes particularly clear, perhaps, is, is how solitude and loneliness are symptoms or reactions to social and historical development. That's right, yes. Um, in both of the books that I was uh, I'm reviewing in this piece, um, David Vincent's History of Solitude and Faye Bound Alberti's uh, Biography of Loneliness, both authors talk about what's, at, what's key and what's at, at stake is this kind of free, voluntary... Uh, transitioning between states of solitude and society um, and that, that an ideal life allows you to, to traverse back and forth between these states um, in a kind of self-balancing way. Loneliness as a, as a problem, as a condition, arises out of what David Vincent calls failed solitude or prolonged involuntary uh, solitude. And, and presumably the, 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 the one, the solitude, the voluntary solitude is... is necessary for an artist is that one one theme that comes out that in order to create great art to, to transcend transcendental art as, as you say you need a certain amount of aloneness because that enables you to to concentrate on producing something absolutely that comes out in uh, Faye Bound Alberti's uh, kind of capsule uh, thematic biography of, of Virginia Woolf in her book she she uses Virginia Woolf to track um the kind of productive uh, state of solitude, the productive state of loneliness, which can even be um, uncomfortable uh, and, uh, and a thing that you have to force yourself to stay in as an artist and how that you know, grades ever so subtly into the more debilitating kinds of, of loneliness that we can experience. It seems interesting, uh, you mentioned at one point, um, until 200 years ago, the notion of loneliness barely existed which is an interesting idea in itself and plenty, plenty to unpack there. But then from there, you move, you move into um, Johann George Zimmermann. How significant was he in the kind of the popular evolution of, of loneliness as we kind of talk about it now? 
This seems to have been, according to both of these authors, a, a really crucial moment in the history of this, uh, this uh, our conceptions of, of solitude and loneliness is this English translation of um, Zimmerman's book in, in 1791, which became a fashionable volume to sort of brandish later on in, among the kind of young romantic generation. Zimmerman himself is, has quite a, a balanced critique of uh, solitude enlightenment terms. He's a skeptic of the value of isolation. He believes in society that virtue is social. It's very much a kind of an encapsulation of this um, idea of, of social contract, social virtue in enlightenment thinking that is very rapidly uh, after its publication, going to give way to a kind of exaltation of solitude as a as a cultural uh, ideal, as an artistic practice. Romanticism comes along and kind of turns exactly. turns the whole thing on its head. Yes, that's right. So, uh, from uh, solitude having been a rather suspect, possibly self indulgent or disordered uh, state to linger in, for the romantic, solitude is now what that which is salutary it's that's it's it's one's access to solitude uh, particularly in nature that that ensures one's sanity one's um, lucidity and connection uh, to reality is there a connection to the to the concept of privacy do you think here you know historically there's very little privacy in households people live cheek by jowl even in sort of small groups not necessarily in large groups so is there a sort of sense of self that gets developed more and more as, as, as solitude gets developed? Loneliness is the, the negative of it, but the positive is sort of a sense of a private self. I think that's, I think that must be right. And I think that's a kind of hugely suggestive and complicated thought in part because, I mean, both these books, Vincent's in particular, traces the development of, uh, of kind of domestic conditions uh, in a very thorough way, and these do and do not map onto experiences of solitude, at least in their cultural expression. You know, I, but you can certainly see um, through the 19th century into the 20th century an increased importance of the sort of individual household, um, and ultimately in the 20th century to the individual within the household, the bourgeois homeowning unit, um, just to kind of dwell on that uh, class for a moment, you see it become solidify as the kind of essential cultural unit. And then um, through the 20th century with technological developments, that this kind of intensifies and splinters within the home. So you go from parlor activities, people sharing a space, people sharing that space around the, around the wireless, the television, and then into uh, our private technologies. Uh, and all the time there is more and more of a, a drive to be in the home and to separate as individuals within, uh, within the home. And that's important, isn't it? Um, uh, because one of the reasons these books are presumably resonant and relevant is how we confront the issue of loneliness now. Loneliness may have a 200 year history, but it feels like it's got a five year history in terms of being seen as a sort of societal, cultural, almost clinical blight. That's right, yes. Um, both uh, these authors, but particularly um, Feybound Alberti, are preoccupied with what has been referred to as an epidemic of loneliness. And there's, there's lots of uh, uh, cultural discussion about this. It's, it's in the discourse. We have had in Britain since 2018, a minister of loneliness, um, who has uh, a portfolio um, that seeks to kind of remediate the experience of loneliness in society, um, which has been actually we're, within two years, we're now on our third Minister of Loneliness. It hasn't been um, a kind of uh, a, a raging success, that department, as far as I can tell. Um, so, yes, there is very much a sense that we are now in a, a kind of crisis of loneliness um, and pieces pop up in the newspapers about this quite regularly. Um, George Monbiot wrote one uh, uh, some time ago that, that both authors refer to that really encapsulates a lot of the thinking about this and thinking that's, that's important and accepted by Bound Alberti that our neoliberal conditions 
exacerbate and intensify the experience of loneliness and make it ultimately a, a medical problem. Um, and one like, well, as with everything that is that is experienced unequally, depending on class and gender and all of those sorts of Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Well, yes. that that comes across very strongly through throughout the history as well. I mean, you it's important to think of solitude as something that one must be kind of granted access to. Absolutely. Yeah, solitude is a, is a privilege. We can I could you could read that very um clearly I think in the interesting uh, differences between the experiences of solitude for bourgeois and working class women. Uh, in the 19th and, and 20th centuries, neither of which groups, it's, it, it's always a voluntary uh, state, but it's obviously, it's one's class um, position that allows you access to uh, time alone, allows you leisure. And so, yeah, it's a very, solitude is a very unevenly distributed uh, commodity. Which is presumably why Virginia Woolf gets a mention in, in this book, the idea of a room of one's own is a, is a, is a kind of... Um, makes it up, makes iconic that idea. Absolutely, yes. You know, she herself, in that uh, famous essay, talks about how it's reliant on, you know, what is it? Is it the five pound notes that sort of spontaneously appear in her purse? Um, yeah, yeah. That, that there is an economic basis for, that has to be in place in order to secure a room of one's own, uh, in a way that you simply cannot, if you are a working class mother of a number of children. Uh, living in a uh, a relatively confined space and you know taking on piecework to supplement the family income it's just that's the room of one one's own is never going to be open to you and where of course class and gender intersect in their kind of most uh positive and privileged way is uh perhaps in this idea of david vincent's this idea of networked solitude i wonder if you can tell us a bit about that and this whole kind of the the phenomenon of men and sheds <laughs> one of the fascinating and very enjoyable strands through Vincent's book is to understand uh, as, uh, as an essential part of the cultural history of solitude is, is the cultural history of what we've done with our solitude. So he's a great historian of hobbies and, uh, and what he calls network solitude. So these, the networks that develop between say um, model train enthusiasts or stamp collectors or dog breeders, all these activities that you undertake on your own and then uh, join together in shows, exchanges, in magazines and newsletters. And yes, yeah, so in the 20th century that you see, you know, Hornby magazines is great, Meccano, all these um, activities that people get involved in and then, uh, you know, changing with the technologies that become available to convey them. So in the post-war period, we then get to sort of hobbies on television, get cooking shows on television. Uh, we get Percy Thrower teaching people how to garden, we have Barry Bucknell teaching people uh, how to do their DIY. Yeah, so this is all, a, I, I found this all kind of very fascinating and enjoyable was to watch the kind of great um, spread of activities that people engaged in which seemed to be, um, according to some outsiders, a particularly British thing. Um, there's, a, there's a, a, I think, a Polish sociologist who talks about how many hobbies there are in Britain, uh, writing in the early post-war period, and, and how much pleasure is taken in pottering about and tinkering. <laughs> these are the phrases he picks up on these great, very um, distinctively British phrases for, for just sort of faffing around, beguiling your time with, with interesting uh, things to play at. In terms of the way we, we, we talked about before, how society being unequal, solitude and loneliness are experienced or are distributed differently. You mentioned, for example, how, how libraries have closed, I think 800 uh, libraries have closed in, in, in the past few years, I think you say. We can, in a way, expect all of this to get, to get worse. I know Faye um, Bound Alberti is particularly urgent in the way she addresses what what needs to be done and there is a sense that things will I mean to end on a downer will will get worse (laughs) with with recession on the cards the cuts and the closures you know of these libraries and social hubs already those are set to continue not to mention the closures and, and social distancing strictures of of our new normal it's difficult to feel that you know we might need 10 more loneliness ministers before anything is is actually done um I think that's likely, but not inevitable. Speaking personally here, I find 
uh, Feybound Alberti's central contention that neoliberalism makes loneliness worse, convincing, and that conditions of precarity and kind of attenuated social networks and competitiveness do make uh, loneliness more problematic. We're in a very interesting moment, obviously, um, of enforced solitude and enforced loneliness for lots of people with the lockdown. And part of what that possibly allows is this moment of, of reflection and reconnection with a reality once broken out of its, its um, usual kind of patterns of repetition. And so I think uh, there's a real sense that uh, people are, are looking around and, and thinking about what their lives are made of and what society is made of and what we need uh, from it and what we, what we want for it. That means there's a possibility that we will emerge out of this with a different sense of what society is for and how we wish to interrelate. Um, that I think gives us grounds for some optimism. There's certainly some movement and fertility in uh, the way people are thinking about society at the moment that, that could bring about change to prevailing norms that, that make us all at times feel isolated and, and miserable and hopeless. Well, uh, Adam Fold, thank you for tempering my pessimism. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, at the minute, I'm spending more time at home with my children and my books, and the two areas do happily coincide sometimes. After years of unsubtle inveigling, I've convinced my daughter to try the Just William tales of Richmore Crompton, and she has just about now embraced their spirit of obstinate anarchy. She's also reading from my collection of novels by Willard Price, with a combination of pleasure and bemusement. Sam Leith has done the same for the TLS, experiencing anew the stories of two American teenagers wandering the world, finding a series of rare and beautiful animals, stuffing them into improvised bamboo cages, lashing them to stakes, and then feeding to them other animals as necessary. The books are filled with facts via what Sam calls constant little avant Wikipedia-style digressions and the questionable politics of their age. Sam suggests, therefore, that their pleasures are somewhat qualified. But if you could ignore the racism, the sexism, the colonialism, the dismayingly extreme violence and the ecocidal mania, you may just find yourself able to sit back and luxuriate in a selection of rollickingly enjoyable tales. That's quite a backhander of a compliment. Sam Leith joins us now. Sam, hello. Hello. That wasn't intended as a backhander of a compliment quite, because almost any pre-1950s literature quite often has to come with that sort of disclaimer. Yeah, it's a disclaimer, isn't it, more than anything else? Yeah, I mean, it's part of the business of reading reading books whose, if you like, ideological underpinnings differ from our own, that 
that you do get you know have to set that stuff aside a little bit but you know any sophisticated reader i think is able to well tell us about how big are these books because i knew them really well because i had them in my house but i was talking to a, a guy at the tls who's probably 25 and he'd never heard of willard price at all who was he and, and how big was he obviously my perspective at the time wasn't that of a sort of publishing industry surveyor but you know a 10 year old boy probably in the same way that i thought you know, certain phenomena on children's television were, were global and they weren't. I think, but they certainly sort of blotted out the sun um, in my little literary world. And I think those of my rough contemporaries, I mean, I'm 46, I think you're a tiny bit younger than me, but they, they were going and they were in print and they were being published in huge numbers and read in huge numbers by, you know, 10 and 11 year old kids whatever it is, 30 years ago. And, you know, he was a very big deal. I think until, I mean, for, for me, the, the big things that seemed people read of my age of that thing were things like Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, both of whom are now more or less forgotten or semi-forgotten. There were this, they were maybe the Three Investigators series. They were, you know, Malcolm Savile, Nicholas Fisk, people like that. But yeah, they were a very big deal. Thea, were they, did they did they get to you? Um, Not at all. Me, so it didn't Not get to all, you at all. But also, I maybe maybe that's because I wasn't brought up in this country, so it may be that they just didn't find their way over. They would have had to find their way over via my parents or my grandparents, or I would have had to come across them, say, if I'd come over to England and found them in a bookshop, which seems unlikely, I suppose, in the in the nineties. Does it? Would yeah, they no, would they still have been a thing then? No, I doubt it. I mean, I think they stopped being a thing. Um, well, I mean, they, they probably suffered very gently from seeming out of date. It's very telling that Anthony Horowitz has rebooted them, has added in a sister, because they're very, very male, very homosocial. You know, it's, it's, it's a boy's own adventure, very much, you know, with the boys taking 100% of ownership of the adventure. Equally, not only does he put in a sister, but he turns them into kind of conservationists and eco-warriors, where they're much more... <laughs> sort of banging animals up in zoos and chopping down trees to sell them for lumber attitude to, to nature in the books. It's quite weird that though, isn't it? Because I mean, I was reading a little bit about Willard Price before this and, and I saw he had a very religious uh, upbringing. Uh, so I sort of wondered whether that coloured the work, at least uh, elsewhere I read then that he, he considered himself a sort of a social worker of the pen. I guess you'd expect to find some kind of moral message maybe, but Instead, the boys seem to be driven by money and by fame. There's also a very dodgy missionary character, isn't there, uh, Sam, from memory? A guy who, who pretends to be a missionary. Cags, I seem but to yes, remember his name. Yes, he's, he's one of the great arch nemeses of the series. Yeah, and he sort of pretends to be a missionary. And then, he, uh, then I don't know, he's a murderer, isn't he? I think he, goes, I think he ends up... He ends up getting his just desserts in the end, but but the only religious figure then is a con man. I don't doubt Price's religious faith, and I think the books do have a very strong sort of moral underpinning. It just looks screwy to us because a lot of the aspects of of morality that, you know, you say it's acquisitive and it's, you know, it's definitely there are goodies and baddies and the goodies, the goodies, you know, deal the baddies, they're just desserts. So it's not a sort of murky, amoral, lacariesque world at all. <laughs> it's, I mean, I think that, that in, indeed, in, in that first one, Amazon Adventure, there's this weird little model. They meet this guy who's built a farm farm out in the middle of the Amazon jungle, and it gets ransacked by the baddies. So they they come upon him, and he's he's amid the ruins of his crops, um, and he says, "No, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to go home." And he delivers this funny little monologue where he essentially says, "You know, we are going out into the unknown like the pilgrims setting out for Plymouth Rock, like." The you know, American pioneers heading west, you know, the Amazon's the last great frontier and human prosperity is, is going to be massively enhanced by, you know, plundering its goodies. Um, so it's got that sort of moral manifest destiny, capitalist, entrepreneurial, colonial moral backbone. It's just a moral backbone that seems rather more qualified to us nowadays. And the corollary of that unfortunately, which I, I hadn't realised until I flicked through it again after your essay, Sam, is the corollary is that often the native peoples are reduced to sort of cowering flunkies or people who are 
aren't don't have a full aren't allowed full kind of human expression of their feelings no and i think that that's you know i mean one doesn't make excuses for that yet it's it's very much of its time i mean he's not like the natives are all untrustworthy you know dark-skinned hooligans he doesn't it, it's not sort of racist in that sort of thoroughgoing you know white men good brown men bad way it's more the sort of colonial patronage yeah the idea you know the natives don't quite know what's good for them funny chap johnny native you know don't trust him with a blowpipe etc so it's paternalistic if anything it's patronizing rather than as it were venom sort of venom venomously racist but it is casually what we call racist now i think in undeniably i mean there's a, there's a moment in that book i think i quoted my review where something scary happens and the you know indigenous bearers they've got go sort of scampering up into into the side of the boat chattering like monkeys in fear and you know that would get him cancelled these days i gave these books to my daughter i've got all of them and I gave it to her to read and she read them and she thought they're all right, but a bit old fashioned. Should we be giving them to our children? Would you encourage your children to read them? You know, I think they can read past that. I don't I don't imagine my kid would turn into a kind of Mr. Kurt style colonialist on exposure to Amazon adventure. Um, I can't lay hands on my physical copies of them in order to write this piece for you guys. I, I downloaded them all on Kindle, which actually is great because you can get two or three in one and they're all well priced, but my kids mostly read and dead tree books. So I haven't tried that experiment, but I would hope so. I mean, I imagine my nine-year-old son going for them, though he's a great scaredy cat. Um, and, you know, the moment of any hint of violence, he tends to go, oh, come on, can't read this book. Doesn't really sound like the thing for him then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, they are bloody violent. And, and, and what's odd is they, they're kind of, most of the time, in order to get hold of the animals, they have to have a fight with the animals. And I think that, which is maybe what made them, you know, such a hit for kids of my generation, was that it taught you how to fight wild animals. You know, I, I always thought, right, if ever I'm in the sea and a mako shark attacks me, I'll kind of know what to do. Um, <laughs> the thing is, is I remember, I remember learning that as well. You punch it on the nose. I think I picked that up from the Discovery Channel <laughs> rather than from Willard Price. And I remember, I remember holding on to that knowledge for so long because I could convince myself that there were sharks in swimming pools, in rivers, anywhere. And I was just so ready to punch if I needed to. Exactly. And it's that. It's that you, you feel like you're getting useful information about what will happen when you're attacked by an octopus. And it's going to happen and you're going to know how to do it. I mean, the other thing that I think I mentioned in the piece was that, which absolutely transfixed me and at least one other person I've spoken to who's read them had the same memories. They were always, always, always going on about people's solar plexuses. I never knew what a solar plexus was yeah, until yeah, I read yeah. Willard Price. But if anyone gets punched, it's always in the solar plexus. For most of my life, I thought, if I ever have to punch anybody, it's the solar plexus that's getting it. <laughs> where, is the, where is the solar plexus? It's basically your tummy, I think. Oh, is it? I've read that, I've read that thousands of times in books. Like you say, it's, it's, it's obviously what went on in the 50s. They were just constantly punching each other in the solar plexus. That's most what they did. Yes, do you think solar plexus was abolished sometime in the 80s by medical <laughs> science? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You don't hear much about solar plexuses these days. It's like white, white dog poo. Before you go, two things. One, uh, lockdown recommendations. Can you recommend a book that you think we should all read or a TV show or film to watch? Because we're now in week 10 of this and uh, people are constantly, I think, looking for, for other things to, to try. So have you got a favourite book or show or film that we could go off and watch to entertain ourselves? I mean, I'm a complete sucker, I'm afraid, as someone who, while reading Willard Price read an awful lot of comics you know all of these sort of netflix series full of marvel characters you know fill me with joy so i've been you know watching titans which is sort of dc the teen titans superheroes um reimagined for netflix um which is you know you think teen titans was a very innocent kind of cheerful larky thing but actually it's it's full of extreme ultraviolence and you know, demons try and take over the world and it's very satisfying and will use none of your brain whatsoever. That sounds good. And one thing before you go, Sam Leith, 
I sent you a book, uh, the Fa- I think it was The Fountainhead, wasn't it? Atlas Shrug. Atlas Shrug. So long ago, I'd forgotten which one it was. Atlas Shrug. And it's, it's been re-released properly, hasn't it? It's been treated as a serious text. And I thought to myself, oh, I'd love to find someone clever, good at writing, who's not read it before, who could read it. And I emailed you possibly 18 months ago and said, would you be, would you be interested in writing about this as a, as a, as a newbie? To-? And you went, oh, yeah, maybe I would. And we sent, I sent you the book. And periodically on Twitter, I remind you of it. But am I right in thinking, Sam Lee, that, that you are reading it? About two thirds of the way through it. It's bloody enormous. Um, and it's, well, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting. But I absolutely will discharge my duties to you in this respect. Certainly less than 18 months from now, I can. I can... <laughs> You're Nicely literary... non-committal. Yeah, you're a literary editor as well, Sam. That's what's so heartbreaking about it. You, 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 earn, you earn your corn relying on people filing copy. And um, will you promise on this podcast not only to file it, but to come on and explain whether there is anything redeeming about Ayn Rand at, at some point in the next 12 months? I most certainly will. And in fact, sooner than that, grovelling apologies. <laughs> <laughs> I'll read it on my next trip to Durham. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I accept that excuse entirely. Uh, Sam Leith, what a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I had to do it, Thea. I had to do it. I, he needed to be on the record, I feel, and, and he's, he's on the podcast now, so he can't get back. He can't backtrack. <laughs> children's books seem to age more badly than children themselves. They tend, as we saw with old Willard Price, to cling to the traditions and follies of their period and are therefore useful ways of considering the culture that surrounds them. It is frankly a wonder, says Molly Guinness this week, that any children bothered to learn to read before the 19th century brought them Hans Christian Andersen and Lewis Carroll. She reflects how the idea of entertaining children via books rather than simply controlling them took hundreds of years to take root. Molly also quotes Francis Spufford's line about the central message of children's fiction. You are alone in a dark wood, now cope, which is good advice for anybody. Molly's been delving around in a British Library online collection and a rare children's books catalogue to get a sense of the history of the genre. She joins Thea and me now. Molly, hello. Hi. We should probably start with the 18th century because it doesn't seem that 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 period and indeed the period before it, children's books were, were much fun at all. Oh, they were absolutely grim. I mean, basically behaviour guides. There's a really depressing one called um, A Little Pretty Pocketbook from 1770, which you think, oh, lovely, free toys. It came with uh, balls for boys and pin cushions for girls. I mean, it was just so officious. For example, it tells what pretends to be a story, but it's basically about a little boy who was so good at learning that he grew up to be in high esteem all around the world and got a coach in six, (laughs) the end. I mean, it's (laughs) the whole, every single one has this kind of thumping sledgehammer message that you just think, I mean, why would anyone bother to read this? And then even more sinisterly, there is um, the Bronte's headmaster, who is called the Reverend William Carus Wilson, who's actually, um, he's a character, he becomes a character in Jane Eyre called Robert Brocklehurst, this demonic headmaster who writes these stories about children that sin and end up dead. He wrote them to, to terrify the students in his school into, into behaving well. You mentioned one from 1709 called A Token for Children. That one sounds particularly, particularly riveting. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love this one. Um, the subtitle, An Exact Account of the Conversion, Holy and Exemplary Lives and Joyful Deaths of Several Young Children. <laughs> It's, it's by um, a Puritan minister called James Janeway. He writes a preface saying, ask, asking his readers if, if now that they've read about these, these very, very pious young children, they're begging God to make them like them. And then he kind of thunders out. You can imagine his eyes flashing madly as he says, where are you as you used to be? As careless and foolish and disobedient and wicked as ever. <laughs> And into this world, then, what must it have been like? Because you mentioned Hans Christian Andersen, but I think particularly of Lewis Carroll, the idea of the Alice story must have been astonishing, really, in, in that context. You know, children are used to being sent up chimneys or sent to school or given told to be shut, silent and shut off and pushed aside. And then there must have been this moment where suddenly there's a chance to be entertained as well. 
it feels like a, a huge turning point when Alice falls down that rabbit hole. And, you know, she's got that kind of sensibility of a fairy tale character and she's sort of quite pretty matter of fact about all the crazy things that happened to her and kind of indignant when with, with the Mad Hatter, for example. It's that thing of believing six impossible things before breakfast that feels really radical. Like you can believe what you like. You don't have to, you can enjoy this if you like as well. And there's not some kind of horrible thumping message coming along behind me to, to sort of ruin any joy that might come from the story. That's part of the aim of, I mean, you discovered, or you didn't discover, but you, you came across the books that you were just telling us about before as part of a project at the British Library. Is that right? Yeah. So the British Library has done this incredible thing. It's put 103 of its most interesting items from its children's literature collection online, but it's, it's photographed them so that you can actually view the, many of them are manuscript. Some of them are kind of interesting drafts of I mean I particularly liked the Roald Dahl ones so you know he when you're reading Roald Dahl I think you just think this particularly something like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory it's you think it's word perfect and then you see you know on the fourth draft you see he's he's whittling the number of children in that story down from 10 to six I think it is six the British Library said on their on their website they hope that this site will empower children by demystifying the way books are created and it is a very powerful thing to think you know this the, the writing heroes that children have like Roald Dahl they didn't just these amazing creations didn't spring out of their heads perfect um, and I think that was one of the things that was that was most kind of moving about kind of more modern literature on there and also there's, you know, there's fascinating things from a book from 1480, which is, again, a behaviour guide. Um, but um, these kind of beautiful manuscripts telling children not to pick their nose and endless treasures on there. That seems almost like the the thing that kind of cinches the, the switch to a more radical, fun, free-spirited uh, vein of children's literature. This idea that in seeing how they've been made by Roald Dahl and, and so on it can encourage the children to want to make their own. It becomes something that they can do as well, which is kind of completely collapses the hierarchy. Yes, exactly. And, and I do think, I, I sort of had this idea as I, as I was looking through it, that the kind of mischief of children's books is connected to the that kind of burst of mischief and nonsense that that exploded um, at the with Alice falling down the rabbit hole and that's when books began their journey towards that moment when George's grandmother takes his medicine and screams, there's squigglers in my belly, there's bangers in my bottom. And, you know, <laughs> children can kind of take revenge on the, on the ogres and the witches in their life. And, and it, it, th that's the other way in which I think children's literature empowers children. Uh you, you quote that great Spufford line about you're in a dark wood now cope. And it's clear that when you look at, stories even even now but certainly over the last hundred years although there's this burst of mischief and creativity they're not frightened of confronting darkness you know fairy tales whenever you stop to consider them they tend to have often gruesome and frightening aspects to them that seems to be part of the mystique of children's fiction as well that's when it's at its best when the baddies are properly bad and the witches are properly scary the fairy tales, some of the fairy tales are so unbelievably dark. I mean, there's one in the British Library called The Juniper Tree, which starts with an evil stepmother, not just decapitating a stepson, which would be quite bad, but decapitating him when he puts his head into a chest of apples and she lets the lid of the chest fall down and bang, his head falls off amongst oh. the apples. I mean, it's just so grim. And there, there is another one which um, is quite a famous one, actually. It's a one-paragraph Grimm's fairy tale called The Willful Child. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across it, but but if you have it, it stays with you, that's for sure. It's um, about a willful child who's very stubborn, um, and so God decides to punish him by killing him. Then, as he's in his grave, and they're all standing around it, his arm keeps coming out of the earth. So his mother gets a switch and whips the arm over and over again until finally it retreats, and they put the soil over the earth, and, and that's the end. And is that his? Is that his mother? Did he say, or his stepmother? His mother. His mother. His mother. His okay, actual mother. The juniper tree reminded me of well, Hansel and Gretel, which is also in in that trio that you mentioned. And originally, that was written 
it was the mother who abandoned them. And then it was revised to be the stepmother. So I wonder whether something similar happened in the juniper tree. And I think it was because abandonment by the bo- by the mother was just too too dark. It was too subversive of that loving maternal image. And so they made it one step removed. So that's kind of where the wicked stepmother was born, I think. Do you know what I, one of the things, one of the modern genres I, I, I dislike the most is the reinvented fairy tale. Because it feels to me that whenever you read these reinventions, and quite often quite famous authors do them, and it becomes quite a big deal. But when you go back to the original, all of the things that you feel that people give a modern spin to, they're already there in the original, the darkness, the kind of the taboos that are being confronted, somehow the challenging nature. It feels it's there already. And often when it's, it's re, re, recast in the modern world, it doesn't seem to do very much because it's, it's not adding anything to, to what was already there. But what about there. Angela yeah. Carter? Well, I read, funnily enough, Thea, I read Angela Carter's last year uh, and I liked it, but it, I just felt it was a bit ridiculous. It was just a bit lush. It was sort of, it was almost a cartoon. And I felt the same thing. I, I felt that that the bits of that that were so good were the stuff that came from the tradition and the bits that were added felt kind of meretricious, felt like they weren't really worth it. And often I think when people decide they're going to rewrite a fairy tale, they, again, they've got a message. They want to kind of promote feminism or something, which is just so boring, I think. Um, But I will make one exception. Have you ever come across Terry Jones's fairy tales? Anyway, he wrote a book of fairy tales, which, and I think the reason it's so good is that they are, as far as I could tell, they're not rewritings of original stories. He's just sort of written a whole lot of new stories, but with a kind of fairy tale sort of atmosphere to them. And I mean, they're really good. There's one called um, Katie Makeshaw, which is about um, a little girl who meets a goblin and he invites her to Goblin City. And he, the goblin in this kind of rumple, this kind of joyful rumple stiltskin kind of way, leaps around and somersaults and um, all sorts of gymnastics. And chants short or long to Goblin City, the short way straight, but the long way is pretty. And Katie makes sure says, oh, how am I supposed to make my mind up? And this goes on about six times and then eventually the goblin just disappears. And that's the end of the story. And it's kind of turning this thing on its head where like normally the child okay. is adventurous and goes and takes, takes their own fate into their hands. And there's this kind of wonderful subversion of that idea and, 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 and a lesson, but not a kind of annoying one of like, it's worth taking a chance sometimes. And that's there in, in revolting revo- rhymes as well. That sort of, I mean, I suppose, is Roald Dahl a good example of that I'm talking rubbish, that, you know, he he, t- he took some archetypal stories and he made them, he, he reinvented them and made them yeah, lively. I love them. Yeah, all right. I'm, I'm, I, Thea, I, I'm, am I guessing that have I spoken amiss by cr- criticizing Angela Carter? Uh, well, because I went, I de- went deathly quiet. You went, you did, and I, I, I feel, I, I feel we need to air this. I don't, I don't want it to become a thing. I don't, I don't want it to linger in our relationship. No, yeah. <laughs> You're dead no? to me. No, um, <laughs> no, no. I was just, I was just thinking. Uh, well, I think I, yeah, I just felt differently. I suppose there's a time and a place, and I read them in a very different way. But to me, they were, they felt quite quite radical yeah <laughs> and, I, and I, I love precisely the lushness of them I think because it wasn't really like anything that I'd read by that point perhaps I in the same way as you love genre literature for some of those qualities as well yeah and I guess I came to it very very late and it just it felt a bit sort of unimbarrassable which I thought which I thought was kind of good and then I just felt it was a bit yeah too I mean much, I haven't but, I haven't read I mean, them I, in oh, 15 years so who, who knows how I would feel now but certainly at the time yeah I, yeah yeah. <laughs> the other thing about fairy tales that I think is kind of possibly partly explains why we're so happy to kind of read our children Hansel and Gretel about, you know, nearly being starved to death, being cast out, being put in a cage by a witch, you know, the same time as we're reading like cosy things about like Winnie the Pooh or whatever, is this, you know, it's such a privilege for children to get to grips with the kind of dark forces of the world while you know cozily in their parents arms listening to this soothing voice that will stop when asked and you know so with their kind of embedded in our consciousness in, in a very cozy way yeah. um, and so it sort of seems completely normal to to be reading about these kind of horrific stories actually when you look back at them. Uh, before before you go Molly and Theo I, I'm interested in should we favorite children's book can we can you think of one that you would 
that would you can remember a book it doesn't have to be a fairy tale or anything just a book of your childhood that you look back on with great fondness if I had to choose one I I mean probably Horton Hatches the Egg by Dr Seuss um uh, which is about an elephant or a, a, a lazy bird who um who's looking for somebody to sit on her nest so she can go on holiday and um Horton the elephant passes by Hello, smiles the ladybird, smiling her best. You've nothing to do and I do need a rest. Would you like to sit on the egg in my nest? And then he sits there. He sits there, he sits there. And he, you know, all sorts of awful things happen. Finally, he's dug up. His tree is dug up and taken across the sea. And he's sold to a circus. The egg hatches. And just as Maisie Bird's coming, you know, um, comes sort of soaring in through the trees while still on holiday and um, squawks, you know, that's my egg because um, the work was all done. Now she wanted it back. And it's just this glorious moment. I mean, it's kind of got this wonderful thing of, you know, of course an elephant can sit in a tree. That's all fine. But also it's sort of very moving in the end as well, you know, when suddenly Horton the elephant saw something you know, out of the pieces of red and white shell from the egg that he'd sat on so long and so well. Horton the elephant saw something whiz. It had ears and a tail and a trunk just like his. Um, and they sent him home happy 100%. Just, Have you got that in front of you, Molly? Is that from memory? I was, was going to ask, is that from memory? <laughs> I, it is from memory. I've read it so many that's, times to my children. That's astounding. Yeah. We've spoken about this before on the podcast, haven't we? And I think last time I told you about um, Gianni Rodari and like his vegetal adventures, uh, of the <laughs> oppression in the vegetable plot. I think it's been translated into English, but I can't remember what it's been translated as. It's basically a little onion. It's called Il Romanzo di Cipollino. Uh, Cipollino is the little onion uh, and he kind of fights oppression and, and uh, the oppression is uh, the royal tomato and lemon and they're, they're just horrible to all of the other vegetables. So there was that one, but actually, so I've recommended that one again, um, but actually I didn't read that much, I don't think, as a child or I don't really remember feeling particularly passionate about anyone, any 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 one book in particular. I wrote a lot of my own. <laughs> I was reminded of this when I went up to, um, after my grandma died, we went up to clear some stuff and um, and we found scraps of, of, of writing that me and my sister had done. And I've actually got a very short one here, if you'd like oh, to hear it. Yes. I mean, it's, let me see it. Hold on. I might not. It's 20 lines. It might be a bit long. I'll just do, I'll do, I'll do you the end. So basically these two children, they're in China uh and uh, they live near this castle and they're told never to go to the castle uh and the castle is called Taifu because that was the tea that my nana had I presume <laughs> so anyway eventually they go to this castle and they're allowed in by this this evil old woman uh, and then they see this castle and it goes as soon as the children walked through the door a big cage fell over them um they were the dragon's prisoners the dragon smiled a watery smile and began to laugh he fell on the floor and kicked with his legs then he walked out of the hall in the castle laughing and for all we know, they were left there to rot and are still haunting the old ruins of the castle and terrorise everyone who goes to the castle. And every July 4th, they go to the city to murder people. <laughs> the end. Well, I think that, that neatly ties in everything we've been talking about, Theo. <laughs> I also love the fact that you're, you're basically like, the Israeli said, every time I want to read a book, I write one. Oh, well, exactly. And, and you just, <laughs> and I basically said, name a children's book. I, I will be naming my own. <laughs> By theatre, age nine. <laughs> um, well, there we go. I don't know. I, I don't feel I can recommend anything better. better How than can that. you possibly That's... follow that? Oh, I can't follow. Molly's got an entire book off by heart. You, <laughs> you've provided your own. I used to love that. I did love the Just William books, uh, which I re- I read a lot. And my kids are just about, but they're reading them. They're reading them now, but they're not enjoying them. I've got to, I've got to stop trying to force force it on them. I think. Molly, uh, thank you so much for for joining us today. What a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to talk to you. That's all we have time for this week. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS this week. Apart from children's fiction and loneliness, we also look at Virginia Woolf's experience of a pandemic, think about what made Herodotus interesting, and hear the tale of the falcon thief. Next week, we'll be remembering E.M. Forster and hopefully hearing the literary names of your children as well as your pets. Until then, from Thea and me, goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 